The time is 1893, and novelist and inventor H.G. Wells invites you to join him on a flight from London to San Francisco. In under a minute, you will be transported to a bizarre and fantastic new age. Today. Time after time. For H.G. Wells, the modern world offers a spectacular array of revelations, embarrassments, and delights. Well, hello there. Hello. What's up, Doc? I beg your pardon? You were saying, where to? Uh, could you please take me as quickly as possible to the Hyatt? But Wells has not come here as a tourist. His visit will be somewhat more dangerous. For he is pursuing Jack the Ripper, a villain who has eluded his fate by escaping into time. Ninety years ago, I was a freak. Today, I'm an amateur. <laughs> I'm obliged to take you back to face the consequences of your acts. You take me back. How do you propose to do that? By force? Be reasonable, John. We don't belong here. A 19th century gentleman. One. You don't close your eyes. And a 20th century woman. One nearer to you. Join forces to capture a criminal from the past. At large, in the modern world. But even more than they want him, he needs them. Throw me the key, and I'll release the girl. On your honor, John. You have my word as a gentleman. I would have expected that you'd notice by now that I am not a gentleman. Say goodbye. Goodbye, Herbert. You haven't instructed him in the use of one of these machines, have you? H.G. checkmate and you've lost again. A romantic adventure, a breathless chase around the world and across a century. Time after time. everyone and welcome once again to GeekFest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone and today I have James here in front of me. Say hi James. Hello, hello. Today we're going to be tackling the subject of overlooked time travel films. Now specifically we're going to hit a certain time frame because there's tons of time travel films out there. I would say about half of them are pretty overlooked and a good chunk of those are probably really bad. So you know, we don't want to go too broad in terms of, you know, the range. We could do more shows about it. But today we want to focus on a couple of time travel films. They're all from the 80s that I personally remember 
showing up on cable when I first got like HBO, for example, and they would show these films endlessly in the afternoons. They would almost never make it to primetime slots. It was usually like three or four in the afternoon. And the films we have are The Final Countdown, Time After Time, and Somewhere in Time. So we're dealing with, you know, a combination of what at one hand you could consider to be kind of like a B-movie because you're dealing with you know, battleships and Jack the Ripper and the guy who plays Superman all doing time travel related things. But on their own, these are pretty good films. Now, James, what do you remember about The Final Countdown? Well, I love this movie in particular because I'm a big fan of history. And this opens the book on what could happen if you could go back in time and change some very defining tragic moment in our country's history and how it may affect the future and how many things you couldn't change. The funny thing about this movie is the three of the movies, in fact, they came out all around the same time <laughs> within months of each other. And each of them are really indicative of how these time travel, time altering kind mm -hmm. of movies work. In this one, a regular writer played by Martin Sheen goes on to the Nimitz and is going to do a story on, I guess, in general, you know, military, the, the supercarrier, things like that. And they somehow get sucked into this vortex, a time porthole. We're not quite sure what it is. It's just a supernatural occurrence. Very basic special effects. Yeah, it, it like slows, a storm. It's, it slows every... It's like a storm. It's like a super storm. Exactly. Like Thank a Star you. Trek storm. <laughs> yeah. And when they recover, they realize they're not where they were. And they're in the same physical location, but they're not where they were in relation time. They're in, in the Hawaiian area, and it's a few days before Pearl Harbor. And when they start putting it back all together, they're hearing the messages. They, they're, Radio transmissions. They're, they're still the sophisticated aircraft carrier Modern, in yeah. 1941. So we're talking about a 40-year difference in technology and uh, history, know, knowing what's going to happen. Now, these people feel, do we have the moral obligation as naval officers in the service of the United States with the information we know to stop the attack on Pearl Harbor? And it turns out they do. They decide, yeah, we have that obligation. And they intend to try to stop the Japanese attack. The future be damned, I guess. But a few various things happen that wind up slowing down their attempt to intercept the Japanese fleet. And just as it's about to happen, the storm appears again, and they wind up getting sucked back to 1980 without one of the uh, key officers and another woman. And it turns out when they meet up with these people again, they those, those two, the husband and wife now, are 40 years older. It appears to have manipulated the system to financially enhance themselves and maybe even help society, we assume, because they were good people. But the crew of the ship are still living with the, well, what if? What could we have done? But they had had the intention of changing history. And it's very interesting to me that would we want to change history? What things have happened? Now, the most recent uh, event that would be like Pearl Harbor is the 9-11 attack. I would like to think that would be something we'd want to stop. Because I just think what's come since then has not necessarily been that great for the country. I think the wars and the events around those, maybe we would have been better off as a nation not having to deal with. However, I understand that 
a lot of other things have happened, changes in safety and security. If it didn't happen on 9-11, it could have happened on 11-12. It's just, just so many weird things to think about. And I think that's why time travel is left to the professionals or the crew of the Enterprise. Well, that's why it's always a sci-fi issue. The fact that it always comes down to the question, what are the ripples that you cause by changing the future, no matter how your good intentions are? You know, you're preventing a mass suffering and death, or you're just preventing, uh, you know, whatever, crossing the street. It doesn't matter. Scientifically, there's always that possibility that as insignificant of a change that you make, or very significant change that you make, the ramifications could be so potentially devastating in terms of how they alter the future that there's always that risk. And because we're dealing with theoretical science, you have no clue how it works, if it could ever be real. I like the guts of the Captain of the Nimitz, who is played by Kirk Douglas. I like the guts he had to do his duty, protect the United States. They were a, in whatever time they wound up, they had no right. idea. And they're there with jets. Exactly. <laughs> and they actually, don't they, knock, don't they end up like knocking down a couple of, of, of zeros? They, they do. And, uh, you know. Who knows if that changed anything? In right, Japan. you figure. Well, they killed a couple pilots, maybe. So now, what happens then? It's uh, you know, we always run into these problems. Now, what was cool about this film is the fact that yeah, they actually got to use real military they, they hardware. Had, they had the support of the Navy. They shot on the Nimitz. Right. They used real naval personnel. It almost felt a little like a TV movie in terms of yeah, it, it didn't, didn't need super high budget because i mean unless you're spending a lot of money on the hardware it is a good movie but yeah it does have a it, it, because of the realism it feels like it's either like you know just a promotional it wasn't, film it wasn't that hard to make but i i i look i but still it's watch entertaining this. yeah i try to watch this every few years cool now there's something else about that movie that i think you told me a couple times you like is the music oh i love the music it has a very militaristic sound but there is some who's the composer his name is John Scott, not the TV newsman. Oh, okay. The sound is very, you know, patriotic, militaristic, but there's a section when the time travel elements and things like that take place. It's just very eerie and it has, uh, it just, it's, it just haunts me. And I've remembered it all along. And in fact, I feel like there's a stick song from the 70s that has elements of it. I'd like to know <laughs> if, I'd like to know if somehow the composer, you know, right. if that, if that weighed on him, if that, if he, he heard that and he thought about it. That's why we have the internet. <laughs> Our next film is Time After Time. Which is another favorite of mine. Another really good film. Really. For various reasons. Big actors. But the, one of the most notable things about it, this is the film Nicholas Meyer made before Star Trek II which probably gave him the street cred, I guess, to tackle a Star Trek II. This movie had a lot going for it. They took a lot of chances in the sense because not that many years before, nine or ten, Malcolm McDowell played a deviant in a Stanley Kubrick movie called The Clockwork Orange. And here he was supposed to be a likable, lovable right. version He's the good guy. of H.G. Wells. Now, granted, that's a long time, but in my mind when I was young watching this, I was a young guy, but I had seen parts of Clockwork Orange. It was a little bit weird, like, yeah. oh, it's this guy. But how weird is it to turn an individual, a character, a real person like A.G. Wells into a character of a story that deals with the hunting of Jack the Ripper? Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but those two never... 
Well, meshed. They did not really work <laughs> together, or, but but it's cool. It's a similar time frame, so it's not that outlandish that they may have been contemporaries. And it is expected. You know, we still haven't really figured out who Jack the Ripper is, but it's pretty established. He was probably a doctor or somebody who knew something about women's anatomy mm-hmm. in the manner in which these women were attacked. It wasn't just some random person. It may have been somebody with medical skills and had some kind of mental problem and or some type of wanted to perform some acts of vengeance for whatever reason against the prostitutes that he killed. But anyway, besides that, I love this movie for a couple of reasons. It does start out in the 1800s. That's cool. When he goes forward in time, he... What's the trick? What's the, the MacGuffin okay. of time travel? Well, this postulates that in addition to being a science fiction writer, H.G. <laughs> Wells was creating a time machine. An act because he wrote the book The Time Machine. Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. So it's <laughs> it's saying in addition to him writing about it, he had been building one. There you go. And while discussing it with his dinner companion and friends, who happened to include who we know as Jack the Ripper. David Warner. David Warner. Jack the Ripper realizes his opportunity to escape his crimes and go forward in time. So makes perfect sense. Malcolm McDowell's H.G. <laughs> Wells feels he has to do the right thing and get him back and, you know, end this. He realizes that he's the criminal and he can't let that be unleashed on future society. So as he uses the time machine, he lands in an H.G. Wells exhibit. That's right. Which is represented by the time machine and his desk. And one of the most fantastic scenes in any movie that I've seen is his glasses are damaged. He goes to his desk, which is a, a museum a, piece. A real desk. And there ha- it happens to be his real, <laughs> his supposed real desk. And there are glasses in it. And then he's able to see in this 1979. That's pretty smart. That's pretty smart writing. Yeah. Throughout the rest of the movie incorporates a bit of action adventure and fish out of water, as well as a bit of a love story, where right. he because he meets up with a woman who winds up helping him. It's Mary Steenburgen, and you and, know and, that sooner or later she's going to be the target. And, and and ironically, she is also Doc Brown's uh, love oh, interest in another very famous time travel, time travel movie, <laughs> a not so overlooked time travel <laughs> movie. And between the chase and the excitement, H.G. Wells does the right thing. So after all the adventure, Jack the Ripper is attempting to use the time machine one more time. H.G. Herbert, as we wind up knowing him in the movie, pulls the key out, and basically Jack the Ripper gets lost in the vortex. After all said and done, H.G. Wells realizes that time travel is too dangerous. He's going to destroy the machine once he gets back, and blah, blah, blah. Well, Mary Seenburgen wants to go back with him. She decides to join him, and they go back. It's just a nice ending, and it's a good movie, and it's just... In terms of time travel, I think it's quite an adventure, you know. One of the memorable scenes I remember is when they go into McDonald's and he's, I think he's by himself at this time. Yeah. He doesn't know how to order. He's watching everybody order and everybody seems to be ordering the same thing. Cheeseburger, fries, Coke. Cheeseburger, fry, Coke. Cheeseburger, fry, Coke. And he's like, okay, it's my turn. He's like, cheeseburger, fry, and a tea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And the lady's looking at him like, huh? (laughs) And again, Malcolm McDowell, you know. A completely different character. I mean, he's a great actor. He's he's playing this little delicate, you know, prissy kind of, you know, 
frail man and in this big city out of all places he's in new york city you know and what's interesting to star trek fans since we mentioned nicholas meyer who wound up directing (laughs) who happened to direct two of the best star trek movies malcolm mcdowell winds up in a star trek movie yep and David Warner winds up in two, one That's of right. which being a Nicholas Meyer movie, The oh, Undiscovered Country. It all comes full so, circle. So the whole thing really is good for Star Trek fans, but it's really a good time travel movie that because it's over 30 years old, people forget about it. And it, you know, it, it did its run on cable. Every now and then it pops up on certain channels. But again, that's another one. I bought and I, I really like to watch every now and then. It's a good use of San Francisco as well. Again, you know, minimal effects, not too crazy, but it's it's really a character piece, really. Yeah. The good acting from all these three actors is what really drives the whole movie. And it's very inventive and witty, the writing. You know? Yeah, well, you know, the one thing, it, the fish out of water aspect of it, Jack the Ripper winds up fitting in. And the moral there is that evil will survive whatever, <laughs> in whatever time. But it's harder for H.G. Wells to fit in because he's not looking to manipulate people. He's just trying to be a good guy and fix the problem he helped create. Well, the third and final film we have in this genre of overlooked time travel films is probably the, I don't want to say the simplest, but it's almost not even a time. It doesn't even feel like a time travel. It feels like a romantic drama almost. A period piece. Exactly. And- it's called Somewhere in Time, which stars one of the biggest names of the late 70s and early 80s, Christopher Reeve. This may have been his first movie after Superman. He had just really blown everybody away as Superman. And this was quite a departure. I was a little weird at seeing him because it was somewhat of a big movie at the time because it had him coming off of Superman. It had Jane Seymour, who was not... Yep famous but very pretty and and respected for the few things she had actually done Battlestar Galactica that's how I knew who she was so now I've got Superman and Serena from Battlestar Galactica mm-hmm. and it had Christopher Plummer who is a very well respected British actor even back then even back then this movie like as Carlos said it's barely a time travel movie <laughs> but it's such a time travel and it's movie. not a technical time travel movie no. either in 1979 Christopher Reeve's character becomes enamored with this picture of a woman who happens to be Jane Seymour. And he hypnotizes himself into believing he's back in 1910 at the same hotel he's actually staying at, the Grand Hotel. And it's so realistic that he believes he's there. He has clothes. He has the correct mannerisms. However, he doesn't quite fit in because Christopher Plummer's character is very protective for various reasons, and there's more to that subplot of why he's trying to... And we're seeing this. We are seeing it as if he goes to sleep almost, and then wakes up in full clothes. In reality, to us, he's just laying in a bed alone in a room. In his mind, he's in 1910, interacting with these characters. And it's unbelievable that, I guess, your mind can act in such a way that you can believe you're in that. Now, I'm not sure if I believe that could happen. I imagine the mind is so mysterious that somehow you could wind up making yourself believe absolutely anything. I mean, there's people with dementia who think that, I guess Alzheimer's is even like that. Sometimes you hear people thinking they're still, when they were a young person, but they're 80 years old and they don't have control over their thoughts as easily as they did. So by the end, he is distracted. He goes back 
once he's there, he well, that's because he makes a number of trips, right? Yep. And on his la- one of his last trips, he's distracted from his hypnosis because he sees a coin that says 1979 on it. That rips him out of time and back to his own time where he's just a wreck. He cannot find a way to get back into this hypnosis no matter what he does Mm -hmm. to the point where he just forces himself to lay in the bed until basically he dies of weakness and distress, Mm -hmm. at which point he returns, it appears, to the voice of Elise. But more like an afterlife type of thing. Exactly. Not a time travel. So it's a very... It's a very simple romantic story right. that is very complicated when you try to break it down, whether it's a time travel story or it's a state of mind. But, or- that, but here's my question to you. Do you still feel that this is an individual that's losing his mind? He's not really traveling? To me, it always looked like he was managing these jumps because of the fact that he was encouraged to do it. I Before he started the experiment. Yeah, I know. And it's based on a book. And maybe if I had read the book, I would understand it. I think it has some some key differences. So that might not Meaning help. Meaning that woman is probably her as an old woman. Yeah. So while it wants you to give the impression that it is real time travel, I think it's more of a hallucination. And I'm not even sure if that woman who beckons him back is not a figment of his imagination as well. I'm, ju- I'm just not sure. And- I didn't really like the movie at the time, but it grew on me. And as recently as last year, I watched it again. And I really did like it this time. And what I liked even more about it, which I had forgotten, was the soundtrack that was by John Barry. Mm. And I think that really helped me more as I was older because I like that. And it, it, I don't think I was brought into the romance, but having, you know, having lost Christopher, you know, we lost Christopher Reeve. That was when he was still young and vibrant. And I guess just something about it makes you give it a second chance. And that's probably what happened with me. That's why I liked it. I think what I admire the most about the film is the fact that it's so simple in terms of it strips away all the science and all the technology from your traditional time travel films and gives you just the emotional part of it. You know, the how is this person reacting to the reason why he's doing these jumps? It's almost kind of like an acoustic version of a time travel yeah, film. Yeah, I understand. I can see a manner in which you would create a time travel type of experience. I've even recently watched things that were in order from 1982 to 1984 and listened to the music. You wind up thinking more in that life than present day because you've got the music Mm-hmm. The TV, you know, and, and if you get too involved, you can wind up immersing yourself too much. Like, well, wait a minute. Where am I? What's reality at that point? So, Another thing I remember is the uh, the cinematography. To me, I remember it like a lot of things looking very sepia tone in terms of they want you to realize that when you're in that time, things look different. Not because of reality's sake, but it because of that old time. Had this look. magical feel, like right. a little, little, a little, a little dreamy, feel, a little... almost as if you're looking at an old picture yeah. or a painting of the era. So yeah, this is definitely the most different and the most bare bones of all these three films. But that's why and, I think it general. makes it better. That makes it that makes it special because it's not as cookie cutter. Like, yeah. Yep. We're going back in time. And they don't drown in you in, in in you know science talk and, and that type of jargon. You know. They don't have to give you too much of an explanation of how and why things are happening. They're just happening, and it's like, okay, deal with the emotional part 
of the story, not the explanations for the scientific things. So yeah, this is a good entry into this chapter of you know, these overlooked films, and they're all, you know, they do have a running theme running, obviously the time travel in some manner or the other, and a lot of famous people involved yeah, in this. there's enough in it besides the story and the time travel gimmick. There's enough in it in terms of acting and music and directing that, you know, genre, genre fans could very easily look check these out and like them. Definitely a couple of films to put on your list, you know, if you ever want to explore the time travel genre. These are some little-known films that definitely hit a home run with. Well, thank you, James, for joining us on today's examination of time travel films that are not very well-known. And we will see all you guys here next time when we discuss another one of these wacky topics. And see you soon here on GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. Picture. Radar shows us clear, sir. Can't you see that Russian trawler? I have the signal officer on deck, but no visual sighting, sir. All of us know that movement through time is possible. Einstein proved it. There are forces in the universe which we're only now just beginning to understand. I mean understand through science, not superstition. There are black holes in space, antimatter, curved space. Things that are as strange to us as electricity would have been to people in the Middle Ages. Or this ship in World War II. What's happening here? Who are you people? Are we at war? Is that what happened? Splash the zeros. I say again, splash the zeros. We've got an incredible opportunity here. We know where all the mistakes are going to be made in the next 40 years, and you've got the power to correct them. I've got planes out there. Those planes give us all a second chance. We're a bunch of damn fools if we don't take it. Those men have enough knowledge among them to build the atom bomb, reach the moon years before it should have happened. Is that a terrifying prospect, Captain? On December the 6th, 1980, the nuclear carrier USS Nimitz disappeared in the Pacific and reappeared December 6th, 1941, off the coast of Pearl Harbor. The final countdown is about to begin. Stop.